we look to Leviticus 27. Again, what's been the whole theme of Leviticus? It's holiness, right? It's all about holiness. It's about being set apart away from this world, then being set apart for a relationship with God. And then as we are set apart for this relationship with God, we're set apart for the work of God. And lots of times we think of holiness, right, when in terms of glowing, right, or always doing the right thing. Uh, maybe you think you should have a little halo around your head or a little glowing aura around you, right, as you grow in holiness. But as we'll see tonight, holiness and being set apart from this world, it's being honest. It's being trustworthy. It's being truthful. It's being on time. It's being a man or a woman of our word. This practical aspect of life is also a part of being holy as the Lord is holy. Right? I think whenever we have a relationship with someone, we don't ever say, man, I just hate that. They're so trustworthy, right? I can't stand it. They're always on time. What a bummer, right? I don't think you ever have that complaint, especially if you're doing work on your house, right? Or waiting for a contractor or work with your mechanic, right? And even with our spouses, our family members, our co-workers, honesty, trustworthiness, being on time, and our word, just so important. A couple quotes here. Ever since I was a little kid, someone's keeping of their promises was always super special to me. I think it's always very important to children, especially with parents, that, man, if you don't keep your word and you're constantly breaking your word with your kids, it's just not a good look. Same with spouses and in marriage. It's not great if you're constantly breaking your promises or, or lying. But here's a couple of quotes. Hopefully you enjoy them. I enjoyed some of them. A man by the name of Vincent Peel, he says, Promises are like crying babies in a theater. They should be carried out at once. They should be carried out at once. Bill Courtney, on a little bit more serious note, he says, You can't be a successful leader or mentor until you have served. You cannot serve until you've stepped out of your comfort zone. And you cannot step out of your comfort zone unless you have character and you keep your word. Again, so important for us to keep our word. Another quote, don't know who it's by, but it says, People with good intentions give their word. But people with good character keep it. Important. Lou Holtz, famous uh, college football coach, says, Don't ever promise more than you can deliver, but always deliver more than you can promise. It's a great one. Finally, on a lighter note, maybe this is you, a comedian said, he says, I'm a man of my word, and that word is unreliable. Hopefully that's none of us here, right? Hopefully that's none of us here. How God, he expects us to keep our promises especially when we're making promises to Him. And being in in ministry for a little bit now, lots of times we make promises to God in hopes that He'll save us out of a bad situation. I think we've all been there as kids, as students, right? Lord, I didn't study for this test, God. But I promise, this one time, if you bail me out, I promise I'll never not study for a test again, right? How often I did that several, several, several times, right? And for each of us, maybe different promises that we made. Lord, if you finally get me the girl, I promise I'll go deeper in my walk with you. Lord, if you finally give us that kid, that child, Lord, I promise I'll go deeper. Lord, if you give me that job, that income, whatever little thing, oftentimes we make these vows to God and God takes them seriously. 
And there's two ways that we can look at chapter 27. In a beautiful note, in a gracious note, one thing we can realize is that anyone can make a vow to God. Anyone can make a promise to God. And God's not going to keep anyone away from keeping a promise. Throughout really the first half of this chapter 27, it's people vowing their lives to the Lord. And perhaps this is making room for people to dedicate their lives to God, even if they were not from the tribe of Levi. So that's the pretty way to look at this, right? The gracious way, the beautiful way, the cup half full, if you would, that if someone desired to dedicate their lives to the Lord, they could just pay 20% on top of what their life would be worth in an ancient agricultural society, and they could vow their life to the Lord. The other way we could look at it, which is the way I really take it to heart and am convicted about, is that God knows our sinful nature. God knows our sinful nature and that we will be quick to make promises, but we oftentimes are very slow to deliver on those promises. I think that's, that's just how the Lord convicted me of in looking at this portion of Scripture. So Numbers chapter 27, we'll read verses 1. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man consecrates by a vow certain persons to the Lord according to your valuation. If your valuation is of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. And if it's from 5 years old up to 20 years old, then your valuation for a male shall be 20 shekels. And for a female, ten shekels. And if from a month old up to five years old, then your valuation for a male shall be five shekels of silver. And for a female, your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if from sixty years old and above, if it is a male, then your valuation shall be fifteen shekels. And for a female, ten shekels. But if he's too poor to pay your valuation, then he shall present himself before the priest and the priest shall set a value for him according to the ability of him who vowed the priest shall value him. So what's going on here? It's important for us to look at the reality that these valuations is not how God sees human life. These valuations, in a very practical aspect, it's valuations on work in an ancient agricultural society. A five-year-old right, or a one-month-old trying to work on a field is going to provide only so many crops, or lack thereof, right? A young man, 20 to 50, they're going to be able to provide a certain amount of crops. And a, a woman or an older man, 60 plus, they're only going to be able to provide certain amount of work. This reveals also to us, I believe, that God does not want to force anyone into anything. If you don't want to keep your promise to God, God's not going to force you to do so. However, there are always consequences for our decisions and for our words. There's always consequences for that. We saw that two weeks ago, how every action, right, has an opposite or equal reaction to it. So if you make that promise to God, God expects you to keep your word. However, you could, in a sense, buy your way out by just paying 20% on top of whatever the value would be. So a man 20 to 60 years old, 
50 shekels. A woman, 20 to 60 years old, 30 shekels. A man, 5 to 20 years old, 20 shekels. A woman, 5 to 20 years old, 10 shekels. Uh, a man, or should I say a baby, right? One month of five years old, pay five shekels. Important for all the moms and dads out there. It says a man, right? Five years old, one month, right? Five shekels. A woman, one month old to five years old, three shekels. Man, 60 years old and up, 15 shekels. A woman, 60 years old and up, 10 shekels. And then we see here in verse 8 that if they're too poor to pay, that the priest could make a valuation according to their ability to pay. And again, just the grace of our Lord. He doesn't force anyone to make a vow. We're going to read that. We could turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So important for us. And especially in this day and age for us in the New Testament after Christ, right? Christ, he fulfilled the law and now we're not bound by it. A great book to read at the end of Leviticus is to read the book of Hebrews. And we'll see how God made a better than the law, a better than Moses, a better priesthood, which is Jesus Christ. But there in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we'll read verses 1 through 7. It says, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God, and draw near to hear, rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity, but fear God. Again, God says, don't be rash with your mouth. Don't just say things quickly or without thinking. Measure your words, measure the promises that we make. All throughout Scripture, it likens the person that just runs their mouth as foolishness, as quick and prone to sin. One of my favorite verses, I believe it's in Proverbs 17, it says, Even the fool seemeth wise when he keeps his mouth shut. You want to look a little bit more smart? Just talk less, right? So wise, so pensive. Are you always thinking, right? No, I just... I just keeping my mouth shut so I don't insert foot. That, that's all I'm doing, right? And often that's the wise play is to just stay silent, to stay quiet. But that's what it tells us there in verse 5. It's better to not vow than to vow and not pay. Again, what are the promises we've made to God? Have we kept those promises? Are we just throwing vows and making empty promises? I don't know what the right way to say this now in uh, 2022, right? But God does not appreciate an Indian giver. At least growing up, that's what we would call it, right? It's a person who gives something to another and then takes it back or expects equivalent in return right away, right? You always see this with little kids like, yeah, I'll share with you. Here's the toy for five seconds, but let me get it back right away, right? And the Lord doesn't appreciate that. 
Lord, I want to give you my life. And then five minutes later, ah, Lord, I'll take it back now, right? I really want to make this decision. Lord, I, I love you, Lord. If you give me this thing, then, Lord, I promise I'll do X, Y, or Z. I always think of uh, Pops, Pastor, as you always mentioned, when he first got his license. God, if you give me a car, I promise I'll take people to school. I'll take people to church. And the first car he got was a convertible MGB, right, which is just a two-seater car, right? And how sometimes we make these promises and vows to God, but hey, with whatever you got, man, you take that one person to church, but make sure it's just not about us and our flesh. How often people, they get the right girl, they get the kid, they get the job, they get the marriage, and they leave God behind. See it on a yearly basis. People praying for years for God to answer their prayer. God finally answers, and they stop going to church. They stop serving. They stop seeking the Lord. And you see, our God, He's a great God, and He always leads by example. And if we are truly God's people, we are to follow God's example and not the example of the world. That's who we should, what we should really be asking ourselves in this evening, right, of self-introspection here is, God, who do I belong to? Do I belong to God or do I belong to the world? Because Leviticus 20, verse 26, he says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Right? He, he says the same thing, you shall be holy, at least three times in Leviticus and all over the Bible. We are called to be a separate people. We belong to God. If you say you're going to heaven when you die, you belong to God. You don't belong to this world. You're not to act like the world acts. You're not to follow the example of the world. We are to follow the example that God has set. So what is this example that God has set? In Titus chapter 1 verse 2 it says, God who cannot lie. God cannot lie. This is the example that we should be following. Numbers 23 verse 19 it says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Again, our God keeps his word. He keeps his word. That's why we don't have to be freaking out about our salvation. We don't have to be freaking out about getting to the pearly gates, right? That Those poor pictures, those poor comic books, right? And all of a sudden God has changed the deal and it's not just in Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone. No, he keeps his word. He does not lie. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 tells us in fact that it's impossible for God to lie. So this is the example that he has set. So now who are we when it comes to our word and our reputation? With our spouses, with our kids, with our co-workers, with our bosses. Are we following the example of the Lord or are we following the example of this world? God has laid the example, but now what has God called us to? A couple scriptures here. Uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll see Jesus himself say it, and then I'll give you some more scriptures here. Matthew chapter 5. If we're here, we're saved, we're going to heaven. This is the example that we are to be following. Matthew chapter 5, verse 34. Matthew chapter 5, verse 34, it says, But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. I think we all know those types of people. They have to swear on this and swear on that and pinky and cross my heart, hope to die, right? You shouldn't trust them in the first place. Because your yes should be yes and your no should be no. And that should be enough. You don't have to swear on anybody's grave. You don't have to do any fancy handshakes. You don't have to do anything like that. Your yes should be yes and your no should be no. It says anything more than these is from the evil one. We'll look at that in a moment. But the same idea is mentioned in James chapter 5 verse 12. James tells us, Above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. Lest you fall into judgment. And Simply put, what is it when we say yes and don't really do it? What is that called? Lying. You guys are good, right? Black and white. That's how I like it. It's called lying. And lying is not part of Christian character. It's not. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25, it says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We shouldn't be lying. And we make up our own lies in our mind, right? It's just a little white lie. We've made up a lie about our lies, right? It's really not that bad. No, it says put away lying. It doesn't say any colors there in Ephesians 4, right? It says put all of it away. Put away lying and instead let each of you speak truth with his neighbor. Finally, Colossians chapter 3 verse 9. Same thing. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Don't lie. You've put this off. This belongs with the old man and the old man's deeds. So what does it mean by Colossians telling us that lying belongs to the old man and the old man's deeds? And how we read in Matthew chapter 5 how Jesus says, For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Let's turn to John chapter 8. And here is a difficult truth, right? Difficult pill to swallow. John chapter 8. Again, this is... Jesus speaking, perfect love here, perfect love, perfect kindness, perfect grace. And in John chapter 8, we see one of these difficult sayings. I don't see any of these verses on backgrounds of people's phones or on their Instagram stories or anything like that. But John chapter 8, verse 42 through 47, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Right? What a tough saying here. Jesus is speaking to the people face to face and saying, 
Your father is the devil, right? That's what he's telling them. And what we see here is lying belongs to Satan. He is the liar and he's the father of lies. This is an old hymn that we've begun to sing more and more, and it's uh, from Luther. And for us, that one word that we can respond to the enemy, whenever he's tempting us, whenever the enemy's messing with our minds, that one word we need to say in response that takes all the power out of him is a liar. He's a father of lies. When fear begins to cripple us, we need to put out there, you're a liar. When temptations come and say, this is the best thing, this is going to taste so sweet, this is going to be so good, we have to exclaim, liar. The end of those things is death. So that's why for us, for a Christian, for someone who is a son or daughter of God, he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and his kingdom is established on truth. He is the truth. He is the way, the truth, the life. But now if we are lying or if we are known by lies then the Father we're belonging to is not God the Father or God the Son that grants us entrance into heaven, but it's the Father of lies who is Satan himself. That's why we need to put that off. We should put that far from us. Everyone around us should know us as men and women of our word. Our yes is yes and our no is no. Back to Leviticus 27, verse 9. God continues here giving these commandments to Moses. He says, If it's an animal that men may bring as an offering to the Lord, all that anyone gives to the Lord shall be holy. He shall not substitute it or exchange it, good for bad or bad for good. And if he at all exchanges animal for animal, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. Here God is saying there's no refunds or exchanges on clean animals. You try to pull a switcheroo on God, right? Now both animals are going to have to be sacrificed. You can't be on your way to the temple or the tabernacle and be like, Woof, this sheep looks way too nice, right? Let me go get the one that has like two cross eyes, right? Has a bum leg and let me know. God says both of them are going to be his if we try pulling that on God. Verse 11 through 13, if it's an unclean animal, which they do not offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, then he shall present the animal before the priest and the priest shall set a value for it. Whether it is good or bad, as you, the priest, value it, so it shall be. But if he wants to at all redeem it, then he must add one fifth to your valuation. So if you made a vow, you promised to God, hey, I'm going to give this camel or this other type of animal, and it was an unclean animal, the priest would evaluate it for work. And the priest could use it within the tribe of the Levites to work and do things for them. But if you wanted to buy that camel or that unclean animal back, you just have to pay 120% of the valuation. Verse 14, when a man dedicates his house to be holy to the Lord, then the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad, as the priest values, so it shall stand. If he who dedicated it wants to redeem his house, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall be his. So if a husband dedicated his house to the Lord, and then he gets back home and tells his wife what he did, right? He could go back to the priest and pay 120%, and then the house would come back to him and belong to him. 
Verse 16, if a man dedicates to the Lord part of a field of his possession, then your valuation shall be according to the seed for it. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, according to your valuation, it shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall reckon to him the money due according to the years that remain till the year of Jubilee, and it shall be deducted from your valuation. So, The valuation on a field dedicated to God would fluctuate depending on the proximity to the year of Jubilee and would depend on the type of harvest you would gather from this particular field. Verse 19, it says, And if he who dedicates the field ever wishes to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it. And it shall belong to him. But if he does not want to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed anymore. But the field, when it is released in the Jubilee, shall be holy to the Lord as a devoted field. It shall be the possession of the priest. And if a man dedicates to the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not the field of his possession, then the priest shall reckon to him the worth of your valuation up to the year of Jubilee, and shall give your valuation on that day as a holy offering to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from who it was bought, to the one who owned the land as a possession. And all your valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 geras to the shekel. So what happened within these past few verses, it just reminds us that the land either had to stay within the Levitical sanctuary or it had to be bought back by the person who gave it to the Levites or a kinsman redeemer. We learned a couple chapters ago to, in in a sense, not protect people from gaining wealth, but to protect people from only having a few people owning all of Israel, God would always have the land reset every seven years back to the proper tribes. So the land, if it was donated or given in a vow to God, either had to belong to the Levitical sanctuary, or if that man or someone from that tribe wanted to redeem it, they'd pay the 120%. Verse 26 But the firstborn of the animals, which should be the Lord's firstborn, no man shall dedicate. Whether it is an ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall redeem it according to your evaluation and shall add one-fifth to it. Or if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. Here what God is saying is, hey, you can't vow something to me that already belongs to me. Right? Makes sense? Imagine getting home tonight and as you're opening your door, there's, a, there's someone standing inside, right? Hey, how are you doing? I just wanted to give you this house, right? I just wanted to bless you with it. Bro, I've been paying the mortgage on this thing. What are you talking about? What are you doing in my house? Right? That, that's exactly what God is saying here. The firstborn animal already belongs to him. Where do we gather this from? Exodus chapter 13. If you're quick, you could turn there. It's important, God's reasoning behind this. Exodus chapter 13. Just a good reminder for the parents. Are we talking to our kids about the Lord and what He's done in our lives? Exodus chapter 13, verse 12 through 14. It says that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. 
That is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in the time to come, saying, What is this that you shall say to him? By strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Again, all just a reminder, a picture for parents to be able to talk to their kids about how God has redeemed them and how God is the one who has brought them out of the house of bondage. God also points to the fact that He's the one that protected and saved all the firstborn of Israel or anyone else who was able to go through the Passover ceremony, right? Sacrificing that one perfect lamb and then putting the blood on the doorpost, the firstborn sons in that home would be saved and protected and now God is saying all of those firstborn sons belong to me later on we looked at it in Exodus then the Levites they were the only ones who stood with Moses so now God brings them into the fold and says hey you belong to me now you're going to be my servants you're going to be my priests instead of just the firstborn son of every home back to Leviticus 27 verse 28 Hopefully you're still here with me. We'll look at how we can apply this to our lives. Maybe some of you are thinking, man, I don't want to break my donkey's neck, right? What are you talking about here, right? Verse 28, Nevertheless, no devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, both man and beast, or the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord. No person under the ban who may become doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. Here what we see in verse 28 is that something that was a devoted offering had a higher holiness and a greater depth than just a vow to God. You can liken it to these burnt sacrifices that people would offer to the Lord where the whole entire animal would be burnt to a crisp, only ashes left in a sacrifice given completely to the Lord. So God is saying here, if you've devoted an offering to Him, you can't buy that back. That completely belongs to the Lord. Verse 30, And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wants at all to redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one fifth to it, right? We can't apply this directly. We're, again, we're freed from the law, but if you've ever said, oh God, let me just borrow on my tithe and I'll tithe it back later on, technically you should be adding 20% to that tithe that you're holding back from the Lord. Verse 32, and concerning the tithe of the herd or the flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. And if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. What we see here is that the way the Israelites were to tithe on their flocks or on their cattle is I guess they just have a stick and then every 10 cattle that passes through the stall, that one would have to be tithed to the Lord. So the Lord is saying you can't go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Oh man, this one's super nice, right? 
Let me swap it out. No okie dokes on the Lord. You can't do it, right? So he's saying then both that one that you tried to skip and the random one that you picked, now both of them belong to the Lord. So how do we apply Leviticus 27 to our lives today, right? Should I pay back God 20% on all those tests that I swore I would study for, right? Is that, is that what we should be doing? We can go quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And Jofo says it. I think it's a very interesting perspective. He mentions how what he believes is that for us in the new covenant, we're not bound by tithing, but we are bound by giving. All throughout the book of Acts, you have people giving out of their heart, giving out of their excess. You even have the poor giving even more to the Lord because God says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And if we think of our relationship with God, who's the one doing most of the giving? It's the Lord. We're the one on the receiving end of so much of God's goodness. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 through 8, how do we apply this to our lives? Here's the first point. It says, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Again, God doesn't want us giving with a terrible attitude, begrudgingly, whining about it, complaining about it. God doesn't want us giving out of necessity, thinking that if we give, then he's going to pay us back in return. Or having some other church leader making us feel bad for not tithing or not giving to the Lord. God loves a cheerful giver. But he gives us verse 6 here sort of as a cornerstone to this process. He who sows sparingly, they're going to reap sparingly. But he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. How are you with the Lord, right? When it comes to giving to the Lord, do you really believe it's more blessed to give than to receive? Or are you there counting your pennies before the Lord? Counting your time? Counting your seconds, right? Is that your attitude to God after all that He's given to us? You think of some of the promises, some of the vows in Scripture. Think of Hannah with Samuel. Think of what it was like for her to have no children and then make a promise to God. God, if you give me one child, I promise you I will dedicate him to you all the days of his life. Not just by word, but by literally delivering her son there to the tabernacle, making his little priestly robes, his little ephod, right? And delivering him and dropping him off only to see him once a year. What would you say about a mom like that today? Right, grandparents, what would you say to your sons or daughters if they made that vow with their grandchild, with your grandchild, right? Their only son, their only daughter. But aren't we all blessed now because of the life of Samuel? The whole world blessed now, all of Israel blessed because of Samuel's life. And Hannah's womb was opened after that. Samuel wasn't the only child. She had many children after that. So how are we treating the Lord? Are we stingy with him? Lord, you only get, our oh God, I got 10 pennies here. You got one penny, right? Or are we going to be like that, that widow with the two mites? And she gave God all that she had. If there's anyone you don't want to be stingy with, it's the Lord. 
And why is that? Because if we sow to the Lord bountifully, we're going to reap from God bountifully. What, what an idea there. What a word picture there. The one that owns the cattle on the thousand hills, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. If there's someone that you want to react to with a cheerful heart and a giving heart, it's the King of kings and it's the Lord of lords. Because he's always going to pay back more than you can ever ask, think, or imagine. We go to Psalm 116. Psalm 116. This should be our attitude. And I truly think there's, I don't know if there's a divide within Christians. I don't know if this is one way you could tell between the goats and the sheep or the wheat and the tares. I think you can definitely tell the difference within the kings of Israel. And I think you can tell a difference between Judas and Peter with this one mindset. With our relationship with the Lord. Do we come into our whole lifestyle saying, Lord, what can I give you? Or are we coming into our lifestyle saying, Lord, what are you going to give me? I think that defining question there of our heart and our attitude really might be, right, revealing who we are. If we are sheep or if we are goats. If we have just entered into this relationship with God just because we think it's a good business transaction. Or if we're entering into this relationship with God realizing I am a sinner deserving of hell. And this is my only way out. And not only does he free us from hell, but he gives us so many blessings. Do you come to the Lord with an attitude of gratitude? Or do you come to God saying, God, you owe me. God, where's mine? God, where's this? Where's that? Where's the third? Or do you come to the Lord just blown away that he would even talk to you, that he would even minister to you, that he would even save you. We'll read Psalm 116 together. I don't know if this is your heart. We were reading this together with the pastors and just a lot of us, I think, were amening and getting a little emotional there. But Psalm 116, it says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me. And the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant the son of your maidservant, you have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. 
I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all His people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Do our hearts really echo with this psalm? Or do we think, God, I deserve that guy, that girl, that job, that car, that house, that vacation? Because if we come into this relationship with God thinking of all that we deserve... Got an improper perspective, my friend. Completely improper perspective. Your heart there is looking more like King Saul than it's looking like King David. Maybe a tough saying, but it's completely out of love. Saul continued to try to hold on to the kingdom, tried to continue to hold on to the things that the Lord had given him, thinking he deserved it. Not wanting to share with anyone. He didn't want to share the glory with his own son, Jonathan. He didn't want to share the glory with King David. He wanted to keep all the glory and everything for himself. King Saul lost his way. But David, even though he sinned, even though he repented, he always realized it was all the Lord. All of the blessings, all the goodness in life, it has all come from God. And if this is our reaction, then we're constantly going to be thinking, Lord, what more can I give you? Lord, what good can I render for all the benefits, all the blessings you've given me? I could dedicate my whole life to you and it's still not enough. I could dedicate every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Friday, every Monday, and Lord, it's still not enough. I'm still getting the better end of the bargain, right? Is that your heart? Exodus chapter 21 Verse 5 through 6, it's talking about a slave here. It says, If the slave plainly says, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges, he shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Do you love your master? Do you love him? Do you love Him with all your heart? Again, we go back to sort of that groundbreaking truth as we went through the book of Revelation with the lukewarm church. Pick a master and serve Him wholeheartedly. If you don't think God is a good master, go serve any of those other masters with all your heart. And I hope there in the coldness of it, you'll return back to the Lord. But don't try to serve two masters. Jesus says it's impossible to serve two masters. But if you are truly serving the Lord God, you're going to see how good He is. And you're going to take a step back and say, Freedom? I don't want freedom. I want to be dedicated to Him all the days of my life. John chapter 6, verse 68. Jesus telling the disciples, Will you also leave? And what does Simon Peter say? Lord, to whom shall we go You have the words of eternal life. It's sad because I think there's some Christians that think that there's better places to go. There's better time to be spent. There's better positions to have. Instead of just waiting before the Lord and saying, God, there's nowhere else I want to be. You have the words of eternal life. Luke chapter 17, verse 10. Again, this is Jesus. He says, so likewise you... When you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Again, one of the best ways to realize if we are truly a bondservant, if you are really a slave to Jesus Christ, is how do you react when someone starts treating you like a slave? 
Right away it reveals if our heart is truly that ebed or that doulos, that slave in the Hebrew or in the Greek, or if we think we deserve something because of our service to the Lord. Hey, I've been here at church this amount of times. I've climbed the corporate ladder of Calvary Chapel, Miami. I deserve a bonus at some point, right? We don't say that verbally, but in our heart and in our mind, sometimes that's what takes root. I've served here so long. I've done X, Y, or Z. Don't I deserve this, that, or the third? And our true heart should be Luke seventeen ten. After you've done everything which you've been commanded, our heart, our mind should still be, Lord, I am a sinner saved by grace. God, it's only by the grace. I'm only doing what you've commanded me to do. What's the right perspective of a believer? What's the right perspective of someone's life that has been changed? You see it in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, you have Saul of Tarsus, and he's headed to go persecute Christians. He's headed to go kill Christians, right? And then the Lord, he appears to him. He has this bright, shining light. He falls from, we don't know if he's walking or on a donkey or on a horse, but he falls on the path. It's super bright. And then he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So Paul, so he trembling and astonished said, Lord, if you save me, will you give me a wife? Lord, if you save me, will you give me that kid? Lord, if you save me, will you give me that boat or that 401k? No, he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's a true believer. That's a true radical difference. That's a true lifestyle change. Because a true Christian's master is Jesus. It's the God of the Bible. And we don't look to our master and say, this is what I deserve or here are my terms. No, as a slave, you look to your master and you say, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And even more so when it's a master that you love. A master that you realize, where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. Your promises for me, man, they're only goodness and blessing. There may be difficulty. There's going to be trials. There's going to be hardships. But at the end of it all, you're going to work it all for your good if I'm called and if I'm doing your purposes, right? And it's all going to work out for my benefit. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. How do we apply, right, this Leviticus 27? You can think of Romans, right? Think of Paul once again. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So it's not just 20% of what you think you may be worth, right? It's our whole life. We say, God, my whole life is yours. Whatever you want from me, I am a living sacrifice. Let's turn up 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, look at the balance here. Who do you belong to? Who is your father? Who is your master? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. It says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are are not your own. 
If you're a Christian here, if you're saying you're going to heaven when you die, your body is not yours. Your body belongs to God. Verse 20, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Again, there's no room for sexual immorality in the life of a believer because my body does not belong to me. It belongs to God. There's no room for gender confusion and different things like that within a true Christian because your body is not yours to begin with. doesn't matter what you're feeling or what you're thinking. It belongs to God. That's it, period, end of sentence. It all belongs to Him. So now my job is to glorify God in my body and in my spirits because if I'm going to heaven, they belong to Him anyways, right? That's what it's saying here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 through 15. A couple pages next door. You guys are already headed there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 through 15. It says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. I don't live for myself. If you're here and you're a Christian, you shouldn't be living for yourself either. We are to be living for Him who died for us and who rose again for us. Again, it's not about us. It's not about our bodies. It's, Lord, what would you have me to do? Finally, we go back to Leviticus 27. Here, last scripture. Verse 34, it says, These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. I love how the Lord, he ends like this. He has Moses write this down. He says, hey, finish up the book and say, These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. It does not read, These are the suggestions which the Lord suggested for the children of Israel, right? It doesn't say these are the illustrations which the Lord illustrated for the children of Israel. These are the analogies which the Lord analogized for the children of Israel. I looked that up. That's an actual word. That's an actual verb. I'm not crazy. I literally looked it up to make sure, right? The Bible is not a suggestion. The Bible is not an illustration. The Bible is not a big analogy. That's one of the big things right now. Oh, it's just a book of analogies, a book of types, a book of ideas, but it's not the hard truth. Not at all, friend. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. And for us as believers, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Again, as believers, we have to stop looking at God's word as a book of suggestions. It's a book of commandments. And God says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, if you really love me, if you're really grateful for me, if you really read Psalm 116 and you're just broken in reading it, you'll be obedient to my word. That's how you show me you love me. 
That's how you show me that you're grateful for me. So again, Jesus, he's fulfilled the law. We're not bound by the law. You don't have to feel bad for that 10th sheep that you skipped to save, right? You don't have to feel bad about that. But we should be giving our entire lives to the Lord. Don't make those promises that you're not going to keep. But man, sacrifice your whole life for the Lord. And see that he's never going to be one saying, Oh, I got to pay Zach back. He's given me so much. I still got to pay him back for that. Never a day. Never a second. 